as we conclude the battle at Gibeon. We'll be starting in verse 15. I'm sorry, uh, 16. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makedah. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makedah. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makedah. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lashish, the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death. And he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. As for Makedah, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, and he did to the king of Makedah just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you for clarity in your word, that we would be built up, that we would understand who you are and who we are. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be present with us, that our minds would be enlightened, that our hearts would be turned toward you, and that we would be equipped as your servants in your world to build your kingdom. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.
it's good to take a little bit of a step back and look at a, the broader picture of things, especially since it's been so long since we've been in Joshua. Um, but one of the main pieces of information that we need to remember comes way, way back in Joshua 1. And that's when Moses dies and God calls on Joshua to replace him. Moses was a very important person in the life of Israel. He was incredibly special. Nobody before was, before was like him. Nobody uh, after was exactly like him. That God spoke directly to him and he used him as a mediator between the people. And he led his people into basically out of Egypt to, into salvation in this way. And in this work as a mediator... Moses is a shadow of Christ. And as we see this passing of the torch in, in chapter 1, we see that now Joshua is getting the word directly given to him. And he is the go-between for Israel and God. He is the one who stands between God. And he is the one who hears his voice. God is not speaking audibly to all of the rest of the people of Israel. It goes to Joshua. You ever think about how the Old Testament had priests? They're these go-betweens. And you may look around and you see the Catholic Church or other churches, and they have priests, and other religions, and they have priests, and then you come to church, and we don't have any priests. Why are we different? Why do we not have these go-betweens? Why don't we have a, a Joshua or somebody right now that is going to hear God's word and be, be that mediator on our behalf so that you know, we don't have to go to God ourselves? Well, 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. We have a mediator, a living and present mediator that is our go-between. We don't need to give our prayers to a priest because they won't get to God on our behalf. We can speak to God because Christ is our mediator. He is our go-between. We read again in Hebrews 9.15, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promises, the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. We see again that Christ is this mediator, this go-between, this one who is our priest currently now. That is why Right now, things look differently. But as we go back and look at Joshua, as we look at Moses, as we look at the priests, it's important to understand the necessity of that go-between. They needed a go-between. They needed a mediator because Christ hadn't come yet. And all of these go-betweens served God's purpose, but they served it in a way that wasn't quite leading to that eventual ultimate salvation. And so we see in Joshua a mediator, a good man that God used, but it wasn't the fulfillment. It was a shadow 
of what was yet to come still. And just a side note on this, I'm not your go-between. I am a servant of Christ, and you are a servant of Christ. And part of my gifting in his church is to teach and to shepherd. And those are things that I love to do, and that he has helped equip me in that way. But that doesn't mean that you give your prayers to me and I give them to God. That doesn't mean that you have to go to me for salvation. It doesn't mean that I have a special spirit giving me extra biblical words. No, the truth that I have only comes from the word of God. And I, every day, run to Christ, and I will tell you to do exactly the same, because he is the Savior, he is the mediator. And that is where the church is now. So here we see Joshua, the mediator, in chapter 1. And in chapter 1 we read, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. And I want you to understand that when it says you, those are all plural use. Every place that your, the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you. He's talking to everyone. He's giving it to them, plural, to Israel. It is God giving it to all of them. And yet down in verse 6 of chapter 1, he says, Be strong and courageous, for you, singular, you, singular, shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. And so here's what's going on. God has promised and is giving the land to Israel. He is giving it to them. He wants them to have it. He has promised for it to happen. But he's doing it through Joshua. He says, you, Joshua, be strong and courageous, for you, singular, will cause the people to inherit the land. That word inherit should maybe ring a bell because we just read about Christ causing us to inherit the promised eternal inheritance. There's a theme here. That's Hebrews 9, 15. And so this is what Joshua is doing. And we can see as a whole in the book of Joshua this theme of mediator, this one who causes us to inherit the promises, this go-between who does it, and how that points us forward to Christ and what he ultimately does. These are the shadows of the things. These are the patterns of how God works. And so, in thinking in this broader picture of Joshua and what it means, because it's, it's all well and good to like think about the king of Hebron and the former king of Jerusalem and all these things. It's very interesting to learn the history and the, and the details, but all of this scriptures pointing us to Christ. And so we, in looking at these battles and looking at these wars and looking at this, this Joshua, we need to ask those questions. How does this point me to Christ? How does this lead me to God? How am I supposed to understand God better and seeing Joshua kill these five kings? How does that help me know who God is and who Christ is on my behalf? And so what we're going to do is we're going to through this passage, compare Jesus to Joshua, who was his forerunner, Jesus being the great mediator, Joshua being 
the shadow of that great mediator. And at the beginning of this, just to kind of recap, Israel has uh, protected the city of of Gibeon because when they decided to join Israel, all the five kings of this this Canaanite coalition gathered together and they're going to rush Gibeon and destroy it. They they saw that they had joined with Israel and so they're going to go and take them down. Gibeon gets a messenger out in time. That messenger goes and tells Joshua, "Come, don't relax your hand. Come and you know fight for us." And so Joshua and all the the warriors of Israel go and they're encouraged by the Lord. I have given them into your hands. Go. And they march all night. And then God rains down these hailstones upon them, killing more men than Israel will eventually kill. And we see victory. We saw victory last week. But this is kind of a telescoping view. We saw the whole battle occur. The victory is won. But now we see this kind of zoom-in picture. This is one little episode of what has happened in this entire war that has already concluded. So Joshua and Israel have victory. Gibeon is saved. But now we need to just recap one little thing. We're going to zoom in really tight, and we're going to look at this cave where these kings hid. And so what we're looking at here, it says... These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave of Makkedah. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave of Makkedah. And Joshua says, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies, attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter the cities. For the Lord your God has given them into your hand. And so what we see here is Joshua giving them instructions on how to receive the gift that God has given them. Right? He's giving them clear instructions. They've come across a situation where, well, here's, a, here's something we don't know exactly what we should do. Should we try to hunt for them and figure this out and, and, and take care of this? And Joshua reorients them. He says, God has given them into your hand. This battle is yours for the taking. We need to win the battle that the Lord has put into your hand and, and prioritize. Deal with this later. And so they put these stones and they block the cave and they trap them in there and they have some guards there. And then they prioritize, they have faith in what God has said, that the battle has been put into their hands, that victory is theirs for the taking. And Joshua reorients them. He gives them instructions and he gives them successful strategy as well. Right, because it's it's it is it's it's good military strategy, but primarily it is Listening to what God has said. God said that we this is our victory for the taking. We need to go and take it right now. God has given them into our hands. And so in trusting what the Lord has said, he leads them in the right way. And he gives them instructions on how to receive that gift that God has given. And we see a parallel here because God's mediator has is able to give that information because he has received it from the Lord. He has been shaped by the promise that God has given, and he believes the promise that God has given, and so he's able to instruct them in the right way. And what we see in Christ is something much bigger, much grander. Because as, as the mediator, 
He gives us instructions as well on how to access God's gift, but it's in a much larger and more all-encompassing way. It is not just a single physical battle. It's not just uh, in taking a, a piece of land, but rather it is a victory that is all-encompassing. We read Jesus' instructions on how to access God's gift in John chapter 3, starting in verse 14, when he's speaking to Nicodemus. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Joshua gave instructions that pointed Israel in the direction in how they could, full, how they could trust God's promise in having victory. And here, Jesus gives us clear instructions on how we are able to see God's gift and how to believe in him, how to have that life, how to have that life eternal. We see again uh, in the Great Commission that Jesus gives similar instructions. It's, it's a, he, he says, make disciples, go make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. He's putting out his instructions. Here we, we see Jesus, our general, Jesus, our captain, Jesus, the one who leads us in all things. He shows us how to access the promises of God. And what's greater than Joshua is that Christ is not just a mediator in the sense that God is, is telling him, I've got this thing to give you. No, Christ is the one who himself earns it. Christ is the one who himself makes that way and makes that victory on our behalf. And then he relays those instructions. Christ is the ultimate mediator because what he has done conquers all enemies, not just one. Joshua needed to remind the people that the war was already won. God has given them this land. God has given these people into their hands. And Christ reminds us that our war is already won. The enemy has been given into his hands. It's over. You don't have to figure out how to solve all of the world's problems. You don't have to figure out how to create a universal Christendom. You don't have to heal all diseases or end poverty as a whole. Of course, as Christians, we are called to have compassion, to serve those around us who are, who are suffering in these ways. But we are not called to undo the curse. That's not our place. That's not our job. That victory has been won by Christ on the cross. And so Israel, they're going into this battle and they don't know exactly what to do. But the, the fact is, the battle is won. God has won this battle. Walk this way and do the thing. Go into battle 
and kill the rest of the enemy. It's done. It's over. You, this is very clear instructions. Because of this promise, we act this way. But yet there was still work to do, right? They had to go and they had to fight. Similarly with us, we have a promise because Christ has died, was buried, and has risen. He has won the battle. Disease, death, hell, sin, the world, the devil, everything is conquered. It is over, it is done, it has been given into your hands. You don't need to figure it out. The answer is already here. Go and do the work that Christ has told you to do. We don't need to figure it out. We have the instructions, and we don't need to worry about figuring all these different details out. Jesus is our general. It is his church. It is his earth. It is his universe. And it is our place to follow his instructions. There's a second way here that we can see Joshua shadowing the forthcoming Jesus. And we see that Joshua leads them to a complete and utter victory. In the following part of this passage... After he instructs them, we start in verse 20. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that had remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makedah. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. This is language of complete and utter defeat by the enemy. They are utterly annihilated. We have them pursuing them and striking them all. And there's a, a little bit of a clarification here that may have uh, stuck in your ear. In verse 20 we read uh, that they were wiped out. That you know they all died. But then right after it says the remnant entered into the fortified cities, right? So you might be thinking, well, if they killed them all, how, did their, how was there a remnant that entered into the fortified cities? And this is kind of like war language. It is a little, it's a hyperbole that they completely and utterly destroyed them. And that's, that's to say that there was no question who won this battle, there was very, very few who walked, walked away on the other side. But it was a complete and utter defeat on their, on their part, a complete and utter victory on the part of Israel. And we can see that reiterated in verse 21 when it says, Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. There was nobody who could look at that and say, like, Well, they kind of won, but really, you know... No, 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 no. There's no question at all. You can't say anything against how well they succeeded. It was a complete victory. Even though a couple of people got away into fortified cities. That's not the point of what it's saying by they completely wiped them out, but it's that uh, a war language, a, a sort of hyperbole. Um, 
And with Joshua leading, obeying the word of the Lord, he has led them in this way to have this complete and utter victory. And if you think about the history of Israel, on this day, that has to feel really, really, really good. That's got to be amazing. They're on top of the world. They won. It's, it's, It's over, right? We have everything. We have the the promises of God fulfilled. Except there's a lot more of this left to read. And we see that there's a lot of battles and failure and death still left in Israel's future. And so, while this is an enormous success, it is pointing forward to a greater success. This is, this is God's people following him and believing his promises and having that success. But what we're really pointing forward to is the mediator who would make it so this doesn't need to happen again and again and again and again. That there isn't another war and another war and another war. And the priests don't have another sacrifice followed by another sacrifice followed by another sacrifice but rather that there is one ultimate war that needs to be fought, that there is one ultimate sacrifice that needed to be offered, and that was Jesus Christ. That was our God, our Lord and Savior, fighting on our behalf to kill the ultimate enemy. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has given us victory through what Christ has done. He has fought the battle, and through him it is is over. There is victory, and we get to inherit the promise. We get to have victory because what he has done. We get the result of his work eternal life. And on top of this, we see this taken up an extra notch with what he does with the kings. So Joshua leads them into a complete victory as we see Christ leads us to an ultimate and complete victory. But Joshua also shares the victory with his men. As we, and we'll see that in these following verses They go back to the cave and they bring out the five kings. And in verse 24, we say, And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. I just want to pause here for a minute. Because this is kind of a foreign uh, image in our minds. 
it seems oppressive and domineering, and it's just not something, and it's not an image that we're familiar with. But this was a common image of victory in the ancient Near East. When someone had victory over an, a, a, in war, the king would take the king of the losing side and he would bow down and he would put his foot on his neck. This was a common image and it was even in the vernacular of making someone their footstool, making an enemy into a footstool and that they would be under their feet. This is the sort of language that we see in the Bible, and this is the sort of language that is used in the ancient Near East because of this familiar image that people would have known and recognized and understood. It wouldn't, wouldn't be unfamiliar. This is something that happened at the time of victory. But what we see with Joshua is that he doesn't take this upon himself to do by on his own. Rather, what happens is when the kings come out, he doesn't go one by one and put his, his foot on them. He takes the people and he makes sure that everybody is there and he takes representatives from them, from the people, and he has them put their foot on their necks. Joshua shares the victory with his, with, with his men. And I think it's not just the fruit of the victory in this case, you see, because like the fruit of the victory is that they have the land, they have, they have the result of winning the war. But in this particular instance, they have the honor of being the one who has made the enemy their footstool. Something that, according to what God has said, they did not earn, Right? Because it was God who gave the land, but it was God who gave the land to Joshua for them to inherit. Right? Well, he gave it to Israel, and he, they inherited it through Joshua. And so Joshua is giving them part of that credit, although they did not ultimately earn it for themselves. What we see in Jesus is like this, but far greater. He doesn't just save us from death when he died for us and he unites himself to us. When he gives us his righteousness. Now that is huge. That is fantastic. We need to be, that has to be on the forefront of our minds. It's an enormous, it is a primary gift of our salvation. But when he gives us his righteousness, and that righteousness is accounted to us, it is not only a get-out-of-jail-free card. When we are wearing his righteousness, it is not just something that we look at in terms of, well, this gets me out of punishment. This gets me out of death. This gets me out of suffering or hellfire. It does do all that. But it also... It's something that we ought to consider in terms of our relationship with God. Consider the honor of having that righteousness put on you, though you did not earn it. Consider the pleasure of God that God has in you. That God is delighted to call you a son or a daughter. That God has 
poured his love out upon you. That he smiles and he revels in having you as his child. That smile and pleasure and warmth and welcome that God has put upon you was not earned by you. It was earned by Christ. Now, it's not a secret to God. It was his plan that he chose you before the foundations of the world. He's not tricked. Yet it's Christ's righteousness that brings us into the family of God. It is that righteousness and his reputation placed upon us that gives us that honor and welcome and the pleasure of God poured upon out upon us. In Romans 6, we read, If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is justification. This is being accounted as pure and holy and righteous as Christ, because Christ has earned those things and placed it on you, not because you have earned it yourself, not because you have done all of the good things that Christ has done, not because you saw death and stared it in the face and it had to back down, not because you overcame the world, not because you overpowered the devil, but because Christ did all of those things on our behalf. There's a few passages in the New Testament I'd like to read concerning Christ and his victories. In Acts chapter 2, um, Peter's preaching, and he says, and starting in verse 34, he says, For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is a Psalm 110 that we studied not that long ago that he's quoting. In the next verse he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And the evidence that he put forth is Psalm 110 that talks about this one who would come and make his enemies his footstool. That is the image that we're seeing here in Joshua. The enemies being made their footstool. They are in complete subjugation. There's no question who is the victor in this case. And we read again in 1 Corinthians 15. Then, uh, this is... Um, Verse 24, 
Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And that is quoting Psalm 8 when he says God has put all things under his feet. These are the images that we have of Christ. Not overcoming just one particular enemy in Canaan. Not just conquering our particular troubles in our daily lives. This is the image of Christ conquering all problems everywhere in his universe. The battle is won. The victory is ours. Not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. And seeing these similarities and parallels between Joshua and how it points us towards Christ's victories, it's also helpful to look at the five kings. The people of Israel followed Joshua and they believed the promise. There were many people here in this story who put their trust rather in these five kings. And they followed their words and their commandments and their instructions. And we see where it led them. This is a reminder. Do not put your faith in kings. Do not put your faith in anything on this earth to save you. This is not a, a paranoid, trust no one, everybody is the worst sort of thing. Close yourself off to the world, it's dangerous. No, 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 no. We're all struggling with this, with this sense that it's not the way it's supposed to be. We talked about that in the Sunday school. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. There's something wrong. There's something off in this world. And the hope that we have comes from Christ alone, from the victory that he has won. So we cannot put our hope in reversing these things in a political policy or a new investment opportunity those things are great. I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying don't invest your money. I'm just saying we can't look at those things and say, this is going to solve all my problems. This is going to take away all the pain. This is going to fix the world. No, it absolutely is not. Those things are good. Go vote for them and use them. But they're not going to fix the world. When we look at these kings, we see that the kings ran away while their armies were being slaughtered, just completely decimated. But Christ, in contrast, he chose to die in our place. The kings hid themselves away in a cave to preserve their own lives. But Christ put himself in harm's way in order to hide us 
and to preserve our lives. The kings were utterly subjugated, feet on their necks. But God has made all his enemies Christ's footstool. The kings were hung upon a tree against their will. But Christ hung from a tree of his own will. He gave his life. He laid it down. No one took it from him. The kings hanging signaled their utter defeat. But we still to this day talk about the cross as a sign of victory. God winning the war. Victory over sin and death and hell. The kings were thrown into a cave and blocked with rocks. And the text says that they remain to this day. As at least to the day that this text is written. Christ was buried in a cave. In a tomb. But that stone was rolled away. The kings died and are still dead now. But when Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb, it was already empty. Christ was already living, active, and working on your behalf. Don't trust in anything else. Don't trust in anyone else to reverse this curse. They are not our hope. Christ is. The victory is already won. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word, for its power to change us. Lord, you've used it in our lives to bring us from death to life by your spirit. Lord, we pray that these words would stick with us, that they would form and shape us into the image of your Son, that we would heed his words and call, that we would put our confidence in you and the victory that you have won for us, that we would revel in the joy of being your children and the honor of having that righteousness Put, out, put on us that we did not earn or deserve. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your graciousness towards us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.